Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums to be, and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported, and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. Hello, Jade. Hello, Sophie. Now, we want to say straight up, while we record this intro, it is absolutely pissing down yet again what's new. It's been pissing down all fucking year and we're all over it. So if you hear it in the background, I'm sorry. And I'm sorry for being so aggressive. We can't stop it. How you going, babe? All right. I just literally drove here and then got here and had a full-on breakdown, a panic attack over the rain. Like, we, I cannot cannot deal with it anymore we had as I was driving out the land was flooding again and the little cows were in there so the farmer's got to come back and pull them out and driving in it it's just all of it is so much of a trigger from the last few months and we just we don't get any reprieve at the moment like we're not even getting sunshine like one day where like every everything can stop being muddy and I don't know it's just been a lot. So I have a blocked nose because I've been just crying my <laughs> eyes out to poor Soph. But yeah, we just need to hope that we get some sunshine soon for a while. Oh, I don't think I've ever gone into a winter feeling so vitamin D deficient. Fuck. And I always say like, oh, where we live, there's nothing to do when it rains, but it's okay because it's good weather all the time. And when you have a bad afternoon, it's a little novelty and you pop on a movie. Right now I'm like, we're not set up for We're this. not set up for this. It's really hard. How has your week been otherwise? No, my week's been good otherwise. <laughs> um, I actually wanted to say I reckon we need to do a poll about partners snoring. How many partners snore because we don't sleep in the same bed and we haven't for a while because I wake him up because he wakes me up and now he sleeps in Billy's bed and it's kind of a good thing because he gets a good night's sleep and I get a good night's sleep. But the snoring, it's like when you're older, does it just like – is it ever, ever going to, is it a period or is he always going to be snoring and is this it? Like, And what if he is always going to be snoring? And is it a problem? Like how many people don't sleep in the same bed as their partners? Well, we had this really interesting discussion the other night with a group of women at an event that yes. we um, spoke at and we said, why is there so much emphasis or stigma or judgment put on whether you sleep in the same bed or not. Yeah. It's like if you say you're sleeping in different beds, it's like, <gasps> you know, wrong. Something's, something's wrong, something's wrong. And it's like how often once you become a parent are you having like in your yeah. own bed sex and then roll over and like snuggle and – And, you know, Gem and Revs from We Don't Have Time for This actually had a great chat about this because Gem is loud and proud, sleeps in a different bed with her partner, and neither of them actually have kids in their bed. They just choose to sleep separately because they sleep better. And she's like, everyone always thinks that there's something wrong. And I remember I I, I know this couple and they had had two kids before I had had any kids and I remember them once telling me that she slept I think with their first child and he slept with their second child because they both liked co-sleeping but it was too much to all sleep in one bed and I remember thinking oh my god like you know you know, pre-kid judgmental self, like, oh, as if you let your kids rule the roost like that, like you've got to be firmer. (laughs) That obviously means, like, when do you get time to yourselves? And now I'm like, I get it. That's fucking genius. The other night we had both the kids in our bed. It was torture. And in the morning I thought, why didn't I just get up with one of them and go into a different bed? Why was I so firm on staying where I was? I literally slept at the foot of the bed. You get kicked out. 
You're well, like- I, I should have I should have kicked myself yeah, out. Like I, I did not sleep all night. But anyway, we'll do a poll. Yeah. If I you actually sleep in the same bed as your partner and if that actually means anything. No, because our communication has been the best it's ever been in 15 years. Like just the way we've been speaking and the way that we've been, like it's got nothing to do with sleep. I actually think us sleeping in a separate bed has actually made it better because we're not Why arguing do you think about that, that leads to communication well we're not arguing about because it really it's not his fault that he's snoring mm. and I just can't tolerate snoring I never have like it's just that you know that sound that you just like even with headphones you're waiting to hear it mm. and I don't want to keep kicking him in the leg saying stop because he's getting his sleep you know mm. we're both not getting sleep I'm laughing because if you fell asleep right now with your blocked nose, oh, you would, I would snore be snoring. for sure. <laughs> oh, and if someone kicked me, I'd be so rattled. But he was saying I can't sleep next to you anymore because I I'm just waiting for you to wake me up. I'm waiting for you to yeah. like, kick me about snoring. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. I wonder. I reckon it's more common that people don't actually sleep in the same bed. Yeah, for sure. But kids. they feel like they can't say yeah. it out loud. Yeah. yeah. And how's your week been? It's better now. Yes. Today is the first day that both of my children are back at daycare oh, together babe. in two weeks. Like I don't mean to be over the top. I know I spoke about croup last week, but it can get in the fucking bin. And I, you know, Poppy went through it first and then Goldie went through it second. And I say now, why didn't they just go through it at the same time? That obviously would have been some kind of cruel hell. But the fact that it lingered on and on and on and like we just didn't sleep for like over 10 days because even if they didn't wake themselves up coughing, they woke us up coughing the whole time. And then like Poppy dealt with it quite well. She was still like her happy self. Goldie, no joke, from the time she woke up in the morning to the time she went down from her nap in the middle of the day, just screamed at us. She was miserable. She was so miserable, just screamed at us. I literally heard her say, no, and I don't want that a million and one times in the space of three hours. It was fucked. Like she's normally a really cheeky, happy thing, like still testing. But I was just like, you were doing my head in and I know it's not your fault. Like you just don't want to be in your own body. But I realised that maybe I have a mum hack because it's something I said on Instagram and I said to a lot of my friends like in real life (laughs) because I have friends in real life too. (laughs) Um, I said to a lot of them because Goldie flat out refuses medication orally and I know everyone says try the sprinkles, try the yogurt, try the honey, she won't take it. And because she was on steroids and having to have Panadol because she was getting really bad fevers, the steroids were obviously more important for her to take so we'd give her like the little like rest of her bottle with some steroids in it so that she'd take that but we were like we can't add heaps of meds to it because then it'll taste too different and she just won't drink it and we won't know how much she's had so basically since Goldie was really really young we've given her only when needed of course but we've given her Panadol suppositories and a lot of people don't know they exist or they're really scared of them but I promise you they are a hack Goldie doesn't care. Like we are like give her the option where like you either have medication like in your mouth or in your bum and she says in my bum. She does and it's this tiny little bullet. You just pop it up there. You just like like while you're changing their nappy. Yeah, if you have a child that refuses oral medication, it is an absolute game changer because you're not dealing with like, oh, how much dose did they get when they spit it out, when they vomit it up. Like even if we force her to swallow it, she then will like vomit it up because she's so upset by it. And it's just not fun for anyone when you're sleep deprived and everything. What if she did a poo? Oh, that you have to go I again. I think it absorbs pretty quickly. Yeah, because like it's going straight butt, up there. Like how people like shelves. <laughs> you know, like yeah. recreational yes, drugs. Yes, yes. Yeah, like I think it all absorbs pretty quickly. So yeah, right. I don't know. Like if you're popping it up and there's literally a poo right there, maybe just wait yeah. five minutes. <laughs> but, yeah, anyway, that was my mum hat I love for the it. Week. That's so good. And my root of fabulous for the week yeah. was Jade did a Q&A on Instagram. And someone wrote in saying, love the potty, but why does Sophie always interrupt you? So I want to say a public apology to Jade. We both get expressive. Yeah, we we have a podcast because we have a lot to say and sometimes we just get so excited that we just, you know, overlap each other. I don't feel... I. 
like when we're in the moment, I never sort of really think about it. But yeah, I guess sometimes you do. But she said that she's now going to be more mindful or I'm going to pinch her under the table and see if that stops her. But look at me watching you anxiously to see if you're done talking. Like I'm so stressed (laughs) out by it. But it's going to be my new, not New Year's resolution because we're well in. It's going to be my new financial financial year resolution. (laughs) I'm not making any changes for June but for July, sure. So, yeah, I'm going to be more mindful of it. I'm going to watch you nonstop to make sure you finish talking. So anyway, but shall we get into today's episode? Yes, do tell. You tell. No, you tell. I don't want to be seen as interrupting or taking don't. over. So today on the potty, we have Chelsea Pottinger. She is a international motivational speaker and she's super passionate about mental health, more specifically postnatal depression and anxiety. She's an author. She's an ambassador for Are You OK? and the Gidget Foundation. Anyway, with everything that kind of Jade's been going through recently, we really wanted to have a chat with her about strategies, stigma of medication, all kinds of things, her story. Um, We do want to put a trigger warning on this one that obviously there's a lot of chat about mental health. Chelsea touches on um, her previous suicidal ideations. So yeah, if you're in a vulnerable position, um, maybe don't listen to this one. Yeah, we absolutely loved having Chelsea on and she's got an epic new book coming out that I'm going to get my hands on and we hope you enjoy. Hello, Chelsea. Thank you so much for joining us on Beyond the Bump today. For our beautiful listeners, are you able to tell them a little bit about yourself? Yeah, for sure. So thank you so much, Sophie and Jade, for having me on. I am absolutely thrilled to be here. So for the listeners who I haven't met before, uh, I used to be in the corporate world, uh, very long hours, Hendrix gin at nighttime to take the edge off stress, uh, (laughs) triple shot flat whites to wake up in the morning, triathlon training, 12-hour day. Rise and grind was kind of my mindset back then. Very unsustainable, to be honest. And then 2015 comes along and we finally give birth to our gorgeous little girl, Clara. It took us six years to fall pregnant with her, so I was so excited. And after giving birth to Clara, something really ironic happens and that is an ironic in a way in terms of someone that's a real optimist and a career-drivenist and something that really kind of sideswiped me was that I suffered really severe postnatal depression. And I was so clinically unwell that I actually ended up in a psychiatric hospital, you know, six weeks post-birth. And to be honest, not really where every new mum <laughs> tends to be. You know, lots of mums are lining up to get their coffee and, and I'm lining up to get some meds. And I'm like, what has happened here? And it's really, it really shocked me, to be honest, and, and my family. And now, you know, that's seven years ago. And, and now I look back on that experience of postnatal depression And I look at it with a sense of gratefulness, to be honest. You know, like when you end up in a psychiatric hospital, it's very scary and it's very, you're in a very dangerous headspace. You know, I was very suicidal. I was very unwell. I had really bad insomnia, but it was my psychiatrist in that unit. At the end of the five-week stay, when I finally started getting my strength back, she said, you know, Chelsea, you'd be such a lovely psychologist. And I thought, why? Why do you think that? She said, well, firstly, you've walked through the shoes of very clinically unwell patients. So you've seen it through the lens of a very, very dark patient before. Two, you have this weird fascination with the brain. And three, you're a really nice person. You know, you're in here making smoothies for the mums and you, you just get along with people really well. And I think you'd connect well with people. And she said, why don't you leave Sydney, leave the corporate world, hang up your high heels and move to Gerringong where you've always wanted to live and uh, go back to study. And I thought, yeah, okay, I'll do it. So I, I left Sydney, I left Rose Bay. Uh, my husband and I and Clara, who was then six months, uh, no, she was only four months old then actually, we moved to the south coast of New South Wales, beautiful town, Gerringong. And so I traded in the high heels for bare feet and a surfboard and then went back to Yeah, Germany. girl. <laughs> Became a mindfulness and meditation coach. I still have a glass of Shiraz, everyone, on a Friday night. I still drink a piccolo. And I think life's a really beautiful integration of things and what I learned at, or what I am still learning at university being a psychology student, it's great because we get to bring it into our corporate jobs these days. And so after going through that experience, I founded a company called EQ Minds, which is a, a company that exists to empower and educate people to take care of their mental health and performance. And it has gone from strength to strength every year. And it kind of is such a humbling experience to see the, not just Australia, but the globe invests so heavily into their people's well-being. Mm. And it just, 
I just feel so grateful I'm a part of that journey. So it's been a ride, that's for, that's for sure. Well, from for someone that's had and suffers panic attacks, high-functioning anxiety and depression and has been through postnatal depression, I absolutely commend you. I feel like this is a very confronting episode to have because these emotions I've only recently just come out of, so I feel a little bit vulnerable like speaking about these sort of things just after having gone through them recently. But when your email came through from your publicist to come on, I literally, I listened to your podcast. I read through everything about you and I was like, where the hell have you been all my life? (laughs) Darling, my heart breaks that you went through that too. And I think the big thing is to know is that you're never alone. And I feel like when you're going through it, like I honestly thought I'd gone crazy. I'm like, am I the only one that is experiencing this? Like everyone else seems to be like loving this up and I'm here, you know, I, I was just, I, I literally had just lost my mind. And, but when you, when I got into the hospital, I realized because the 12 mums and their babies in that unit, property developers, I was in there with a lawyer, in there with a surgeon, I was in there with, you know, high functioning. very high functioning human beings. And I'm like, oh, I'm not the only one. And you could connect with this tribe of women in a very bizarre circumstance. So I feel like, you know, and a lot of people that I know have been through it have never shared their story and that is totally okay as well. But I, what I do feel that's very powerful and what really helped me recover was reading Jessica Rose's story, you know, and going, wow, someone like that can go through it and recover. That's amazing. And that's why I feel, you know, Jade, these kinds of conversations of you just being honest then, you know, and opening up and being vulnerable is for other people to realise you're never alone and you don't have to look a particular way to suffer a mental illness and it can happen to anyone. Sadly, it doesn't discriminate. So I feel like there's a lot of strength and I feel like that this episode will be very powerful. When I walked into the hospital because I literally myself had no idea what was going on other than I'm not okay and nothing any psychologist was doing was helping me Mm. I remember all these doctors surrounding me and I was holding my newborn baby and they said, you can go in this room, it's a safe room, it's got a closed door. And I said, I don't want to come off as crazy, but I'm so petrified to be in a closed room by myself can you please just put me in a curtain bay so I can feel like everyone else? And they, I, I just saw a change in their eyes and that's when I knew they understood that there was a lot of anxiety and, and stress. Yeah. It was so many things. But when you do talk about it and you open up and the psychiatrist came up, I mean, he's downstairs dealing with way more intense situations than what I was dealing with. But at the time, that was everything to me. That why I was screaming for help. He just sat there and he said, you were literally feeding anxiety. You were thinking about how you can get out of it, how you can fix it. And that is adding to it. I need you to stop. I need you to stop. And I'm like, okay, I'll stop. But how do I stop? And he's like, Jade, you're doing it again. You're <laughs> you're trying to find answers. You need to slow down and accept that this is what's happening and it's okay. You're okay. That is so true because when you have anxiety and you haven't dealt with it before, you want to run away from it like a truck, but it will hunt you down. And that's what my friend, my psychiatrist was just an amazing, wise, sage counsel for me. And she said, Chelsea, you're going to have to be okay that you're someone who has anxiety. I said, but I'm a kind person and I'm nice. And she's like, that doesn't matter. Like (laughs) she said, you've got a vulnerability there genetically to this. And as soon as you start accepting it and owning it, it will no longer own you. And so she's like, whenever it comes, just my anxiety, welcome for the day. (laughs) Why have you turned up? You know, and you just kind of have a bit more of a lightheartedness towards it. It's like the elusive lover. You know, like the more that you hunt them down and desperate for their attention, they, you know, then it's like the more you kind of just like, yeah, whatever. It kind of just, it's just such a better way to behave in life in general. It's so interesting though hearing you say like that you're almost grateful for the the experience because of obviously the complete change of direction your life has taken and and the strength you've learnt from it because Jade was even speaking last night at an event and they asked for peaks and pits 
of our lives. And Jade said, it's so weird now being on the other side. I hope you don't mind me sharing this on your behalf. That being on the other side of postnatal depression, she's like, I am now so grateful. That was one of the best things that has ever happened to me, even though at the time, obviously it would have felt like the worst because she's like, the things I've learned, the strength I've gained, the perspective, you're a different person. Absolutely. And it's it's so interesting with life. It's in the, the challenge. That's where we grow. And so it's okay, right, to hit the pavement in life. It's okay to have hard times. In fact, we have to. Like it is a part of living a balanced life. Like if you're, if you're all out there having a crack at life, you're going to stuff it up and muck it up at all times. Yeah. Like life's going to throw you a curveball like regularly because that's just life on the journey. But what you notice is, you know, Jade, with your experience and, and with my experience, and so if you've probably gone through hardship yourself, is that you get through that and it adds a chink in the arm and you're like, you know what, life right now can pretty much show me anything and I know that I'm going to be okay. COVID is nothing compared to waking up in a psych ward. Like COVID's got nothing on that. So it's kind of like a real gritty experience. You're like, wow, that, that severe crap has made me who I am. Is depression and anxiety something that you had experienced before this time or was in that postpartum phase the first time you'd experienced this? Yeah, that's a great question. So the first time I experienced anxiety was actually when I got knocked out by a snowboarder at the snow. And it was like a few years before I gave birth to Clara and uh, I had a concussion and this guy, you know, knocked me out and then he just kind of boarded off and my father-in-law found me with my face down in the snow, not breathing. So he told me I've had like this vasovagal, which kind of looks like a seizure. So then I had a bit of anxiety after that. And I definitely think those two things are associated between trauma and a more reactive amygdala. Mm. And then I had another accident, like two years after that, I was running the rubbish down the stairs because I, I live just this fast paced life, right? So I'm yeah. running down the stairs with two bags of rubbish and I fall down the stairs and bang the back of my head on the cement stair and knock out again I wake up and my husband and my brother were staying with with us he's like oh my gosh call an ambulance I'm like oh my gosh someone needs an ambulance and I wonder if everyone's okay and (laughs) and my brother's like sister ambulance is for you like you've just had this seizure and you've just like danced down like rustle rustled down the stairwell with this rubbish (laughs) laying on your back I'm like oh that would have been attractive so he's like you're going to hospital and did a full assessment and testing but then the anxiety hit massively hard after that. Like I couldn't even drive. It was the first time I had a, a panic attack driving underneath the Harbour Tunnel. Oh, jeez. And uh, I hadn't experienced a panic attack prior to that. And man, like anyone that's listening that's experienced a panic attack, it is so real, right? You feel like you're going to have a heart attack and die. So I pull my SUV over. I'm in the in the freeway. And then like I'm in the back. I just jump over into the back seat, just lay, laying on my back trying to breathe. And the poor security think there's like some kind of bomb terrorists going off down in the harbour. So they're like all the security and police. Cars. Like this is not helping my anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> and these gorgeous guys are like, are you okay? I'm like, I'm just, just trying to breathe. <laughs> I said, can you tow me out of here? And I was so scared and upset. I didn't know what was going on. And then I, I saw a psychologist to help me with that. But do you know what is so bizarre, um, Sophie and Jade, is when I felt pregnant with Clara, the doctors didn't even link the two together. Like we, I wasn't even aware of perinatal anxiety and depression. And that, that's not a fault on the doctors either. That is also my own accountability. Like I didn't even know what perinatal anxiety and depression was. I was just so excited that I was pregnant. I'm like, this is the best news of my life. It's taken us six years to actually get pregnant. So I didn't even factor that in. And I think that's why it hit me so hard. And I think that's because we didn't talk about it much back then. Like I've suffered panic disorders my whole life, but no one ever acted on it because they didn't understand what was happening. Postnatal depression, no one actually asked me or connected, have you had anxiety before or a panic disorder? you may go through this. And I do feel if I had have been aware that there is a connection between normal anxiety or or I was at risk, I think there would have been a hell of a lot of different measures taken in my postpartum care to, look, I don't know, was it always going to happen? Maybe. But could it have been helped? I genuinely think it could have. Absolutely. I think there's so there's nowhere near enough education and awareness. And I feel like I was under a private obstetrician as well. And not once did we check in my mental health. Mm. And I thought, 
it's really interesting. You know, like we didn't have, and again, it's no, I loved her. She was an amazing obstetrician. However, there's key things that could have really helped without me slipping so dark. And even me knowing about the Gidget Foundation, right? I wish mm. I had known about them before I went and had a baby. I'm like, oh my, that's why I'm such a proud ambassador for them now because I'm like, oh my goodness. Can you explain what they do? Yeah, so they're the Perinatal Anxiety and Depression Foundation here in Australia. They are helping so many mums and dads with resources. They've got a psychiatrist and psychologist there. They're incredible and they, they purely specialise in perinatal stuff. And so you get these people, these psychologists there that actually understand it, you know. And again, like there's this is no shade thrown at this 23-year-old psychologist I saw before I end up in hospital. But this gorgeous young girl just finished university. I get to her because I had to go see her before they admitted me into the hospital unit. And 23 and I was suicidal, right? And I'm explaining to her that I'm like contemplating taking my life and I was just writing my husband a letter and she's like, you know what you need to do? You just need to have a mindful shower. <laughs> and I'm like, I am I think so I need a bit more. Than that. And what happens? <laughs> what happens to someone that gets told to have a mindful shower? Because this also happened to me when I was in a situation of anxiety. I go and have that shower and realize it's not fixing my anxiety. So what do I do? I panic. And mm. then I'm like, okay, that didn't work. That's it. That's all my things gone. I've got no more tools left in my toolbox. Yeah, I suffered anxiety for the first time last year. Uh, Jade was by my side throughout it and I had my first panic attack. And I feel like before that I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I get anxiety as though like anxiety is bad stress. And it wasn't until I went through that period that I was like, no, this is an entire different realm. And I did the same thing to myself where I was like, I have a really hands-on partner. I get plenty of time to myself. I do self-care, which I'm not poo-pooing any of those things. They're obviously so important. Having a mindful shower is important, but it almost meant when I was in the thick of it, mm-hmm. I made myself feel worse for not being okay because I was like, well, it's not like you have to do it all on your own and it's not like you never get time for yourself. And, you know, you got to go for a sauna yesterday. Like you shouldn't feel anxious if you got to have a sauna yesterday. And so I do think we have to be careful in the way that it's like self-care, mindfulness, everything, as we say, is so important in prevention but sometimes when we're in the crux yeah. of it, we need more and it's, it can almost be dangerous saying like, oh, if you just go for a run, like you'll feel better because number one, you may not be able to get off the couch to go for a run. And if you do do that run and you feel worse, you're then harsher on yourself. Absolutely. So I think this has raised such an interesting conversation. So I've been on and off medication for the last six years and now I'll be staying on, I take a medication called Zoloft. It's a serotonin reuptake inhibitor and I'll probably be on that till I'm 95, to be honest, to be fair. And I feel like, and this is why even with my book, which I'll get into a bit later, but you can be doing all the tools in the toolkit, right? You can be mindfully showering, you can be meditating, you can be running, you can be eating a clean diet. You have really strong social connections. You're getting enough vitamin D, your blood seemed to be humming along beautifully. And still, you need more. And I feel like this this massive stigma around mental illness medication, and it blows my mind. I'm like, we need to normalize this, like as if we're having an asthma pump because our asthma has flared up. Or we would never say to a diabetic, don't take insulin, it's a sign of weakness. Like who would say that? And yeah. so last year, when I had a mental health relapse last year, I'd been off solar for nine months. And I actually had tipped over into hyperproductivity. That's a massive sign for me with my mental illness. And I'd just taken on too much, right? So I was kind of going into, and I work in this space every day. So I've got good boundaries around me. We trained like 100,000 people the year before. We bought a house. People think mental health relapses happen in a crisis. Not necessarily so. I was having a really good time. I signed the book deal. It was 70,000 words in three months, right? So very tight deadline. <laughs> <laughs> Plus I was at uni, right? And I'm a mum running a company. That's how it actually sounds like a crisis yeah. to me. <laughs> yeah. That's I'm overload. exhausted. That's a crisis. <laughs> <laughs> but this is such a thing, right, of high-functioning, you know, people, which is which is great if it's in check, but if it slips into manic, that's where it gets dangerous. Yeah. And so I called my psychiatrist and she's just a, she's just amazing, right? We, we get along so, so well. We have this funny, funny conversation and relationship. And I've called her and I'm like, I've royally effed myself. <laughs> and she's like, what have you done? <laughs> And because uh, I had insomnia, right, that night, and that's a massive key for me. As soon as I get insomnia, I'm like, oh, no. 
And um, I said, I'll sign this book deal. And she's like, oh, congratulations. But when's the deadline? I'm like, oh, in three months. She's like, oh, mm-hmm. so that's not going to happen. And so she said, so let's get you straight back on a Zoloft. Let's get in some melatonin. Yeah. Get you back, pause the company. You know what to do. Double down on self-care. Let's sustain you on Zoloft, right? Let's get you back on. You function so highly on that. And the reason why I wanted to raise this around the stigma, because I remember in part of the recovery, right? Like I couldn't, for people who are listening who've had a mental illness or are going through something at the moment, when you have a, a likened to a brain tear, right? It's almost like you've done your knee and you can't go for a run. The same thing up here in the brain. You just, you can't make executive decisions. You just got to repair the brain. It's almost like a laceration, I feel. It's a reset. It's a full reset, right? So you're just like, you know what? I've got really no capacity to, don't ask me about business. Don't, you know. So I was just gently doing things every other day, going for surfs, things that I knew that could help me recover quicker. And one of the, my gorgeous surfer friends are like, oh, it's, you know, such a shame you're going back on Zoloft. Have you heard of um, mm. St. John Ward? <laughs> and I'm like, St. John Ward ain't going to touch the sides. And I'm like, and I'm also, I said, thank you so much for your caring nature, but I'm going to trust my psychiatrist. I'm happy with our plan. She studied this for 15 years. I'm okay. Yeah. And so again, it's that breaking down of not only owning this stigma around anxiety because so many, particularly women, suffer anxiety but it's also saying hey it is okay if you need some extra serotonin in your life it's like having an iron deficiency some of us just can't manufacture it enough and I also think that even when people are on medication I've been on Zoloft since I was 18 I'm now 35 this year and I sat down with my last mental relapse with my doctor and he said Jade it's just not working anymore. And I said to him, I'm telling you with tears streaming down my face, I cannot have one more of these episodes Mm -hmm. because I'm really, really worried what will happen next time Mm -hmm. I have that episode. And I'm telling you, like I'm I'm literally screaming at you for help. Mm -hmm. So for the people that are on medication and think that that one medication is the only option, there's not. There are, I can't tell you how many options there are for people out there, for PTSD, for depression, for anxiety, for OCD, like I'm trying a different one in the next few weeks and I hope like it's going to be, I'm already anxious about having the side effects and swapping. But he said to me, you couldn't feel any worse now, could you? And I'm like, you're absolutely right. I couldn't get any worse if I tried. So I may as well try something to help me shift this mental state that I am. So I just, I just feel you. And I also feel you in the way of when you are in the best state of your life, uh, you're exercising. I like, I've said to Sophie all this year in our episodes, I've never been more clear headed. I'm focusing on myself. The kids are great. I'm great. And all of a sudden, but all of a sudden I started fucking breaking down because I started doing too much and I started realizing that I'm taking on other people's problems. I'm doing so much because I feel so good that I can take on all these things. Mm. I broke. I absolutely broke. I needed to literally just break down everything that I was doing and say, Jade, you need to slow down and stop. And it is very hard for someone that is always on to actually listen to themselves and say, slow down and stop. Because when you've got all these amazing possibilities and dreams that you're achieving, it's hard to say no to that. Absolutely. And that is a key. (laughs) That right there is so key. Because it's also because of what you two are doing, you're doing such great things. You're doing such great work. You are so needed. You are so needed in this world with the messages that you're putting out there that you want to do more of it, right? And But the number one thing that cannot happen is you two burning out. That's the number one thing. And I think about this with my life all the time, you know, going back on Zoloft and then going, right, you have to put some obviously stronger boundaries around yourself. Yeah. And my husband is also like my bouncer. So he is like the best guy ever. Like he is rock solid support. He bounces everything. So no one can get to me without getting through Jay. Yeah. But he knows, right? He absolutely knows me so well. And he's like, you are too important to Clara and me. His company comes second, right? Your health 
and you and Clara are the most important things to me. And so he's like, we have to make sure. So every six weeks, we take a break. We just take a week off the grid. Every six weeks, it's in our calendar. You know, and you think about that, a whole week off, that's a lot of financial income for our company, but it just happens because otherwise I'm susceptible to burning out. At university, I do eight weeks on now, eight weeks off, eight weeks on, eight weeks off. I am in no rush to finish my master's or finish my PhD. No one knows that. Like no one knows that, you know, oh, did you get your PhD in five years or 10 years? Yeah. And also who cares, right? If they care about that, goodbye. They you know, they're not a yeah. buddy, right? Yeah. Like it like, doesn't matter. So I think the boundaries and saying no is like super important. And, and even like for me booking in a retreat, see, if I have idle time, I'll work, right? Because I get so excited about mental health. So what I do every day is I book in time to meditate, I book in for a massage, I book in at the gym without my phone. So I've got these scheduled circuit breakers. I go yeah. Clara, so I can't take my phone there. I go surfing, so I can't take my phone there. And I, I actually have to factor those kinds of things in. Otherwise, I get swept up into the business and excitement. I just, I'm just a very excitable person. How do you start meditating? I've tried so many times. I know it's good for me. I know all the people that I look up to meditate. I know if you think you don't have time for meditation, then you're t- that's double the reason to do it. How do you start? It's just so intimidating. Like I'm such a type A personality. I sit down and I just, the to-do list just goes over and over in my mind and it's the least relaxing thing in the fucking world. Yeah, it's like Shavasana <laughs> in yoga. Like I used to be always the person that would take off I'm like what everyone's laying down I got stuff to do like yeah I gotta go (laughs) I've done my yoga I'm going yeah yeah Yeah, I've quickly come here to decompress now take that off the list done yeah so for me for the meditation it's the intrinsic motivation in terms of why you want to do it I think is the biggest hook so when I ended up in that hospital unit my psychiatrist said to me Chels you're gonna have to learn to meditate and she said it's going to really help with your anxiety. And I said to her, but but I do triathlon training and I eat organic produce, so I think I'm okay on the meditation. <laughs> and she said, that's not it. I said, that is not taking your brain to the gym. And I said to her, can you show me some science? And she did that. And, and the one thing that really got me across the line was these clinical papers, right? For me, I need science to kind of make me happy. Mm. Otherwise, I'm not going to do it. And uh, there was this one study in 2013 where it showed after two months of meditating, your amygdala shrinks in size, so it gets less reactive and your default mode kind of quietens down. So you get less in those kind of pedal loops, those feedback loops. And she's like, if you want less anxiety in your life, you're going to have to learn to meditate. And I said, okay, I'm in, I'm hooked. And now at uni, you know, if I'm doing a PubMed search on meditation and benefits for the brain and body, we see about 2,000. That's a lot, right, of robust evidence. So the big thing here is... Meditation isn't about us getting into some kind of cosmic ooze and floating around in our room right now. Okay, that's not it. All right, so the practice is more scientific. Like you take your body to the gym, right, to keep it fit, what meditation is. So, and I always say to people, start really small. Start with like one minute or three minutes max, right? It's all about consistency versus intensity. The end goal is 10 minutes a day. That's it. When I got trained, it was 20 minutes twice a day. I don't have 40 minutes in my day to meditate, to be honest. But when I see the new research emerging going, it's only 10 minutes for these neurological changes, you can guarantee it. I'm like minimum input for maximum gain for my brain. Yeah. Well, if you tell me 40 minutes in a day, I just go, well, I can't achieve that, so I'm not even no going to start. We, I probably could fit it in, let's be honest, yeah. but it just seems yeah. too unattainable. Yeah. Too unattainable. So when we meditate, and I always say go guided, right, for sure. When you first learn, go listen to Headspace, go listen to Calm. I'm on Insight Timer if you want me to put you to sleep tonight in a non-creepy way. If you like Chelsea. You have. You have been. You have been. It's been really good. You've been in Jade's bedroom more than you, you have. know. Yeah. That's awesome, Jade. Yeah. That's amazing, honey. I love that. Thank you. She's trying um, to stay awake on no, the couch you. listening to you now. She's like, oh. <laughs> Just notice she nodded off. I'm like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And I always say start really small and it's just about turning up. So if you think about it, say you get a busy mind, which is what you're going to get because you're high, you know, you've got an overactive mind because you've got a lot to do. If you sit there and listen for three minutes and you hear that meditation voice where you are on the body scan, you're able to focus it in there just that once. Like you notice your mind go off. Oh, I'm thinking about a coffee. My ITB needs to roll out. I wouldn't mind getting that scan on the top later on. Wherever your mind goes and you bring it back. Literally me. Yeah, that's totally my chatter as well. <laughs> is a bicep curl for your brain. So if you notice the thought, bring it back, 
that is what's working the brain. And the beautiful thing is the more consistently you keep doing this, three minutes, then you work up to five minutes a second week, 10 minutes is the final goal. That might take you a month, right, to get there. You'll notice things start to happen. Like, you know, when you go to the gym and you feel good for like the next 24 hours, same thing up here. You start to meditate consistently. You're not just more sort of calmer when you come out of that experience. You're more kind of in the moment for all of your future interactions over the next 24 hours. And I fit it in when I can. You know, like it's not like for me rolling out a yoga mat by the beach and having some candles lit and just like, yeah, that's not it, right, because I'm a very time-compressed individual. This is me in the back of an Uber going, buddy, can you not talk to me? I'm just about to meditate. I just put on my Bose headset. I clock in, right, and I just do a 10-minute meditation there. It could be when I fly. Flew back from Brisbane yesterday and you take off, you get 10 minutes there. Amazing. You can't do anything else. Right? You can't get access to your computer, which is what I'll do, right, when, it, when the lights yeah. off. So I meditate then. When I'm getting massaged, then, you know. Do you know when I do it because I'm driving, you can't, hmm touch your phone mm. I put it on and all my three daughters are in the car as well and I think it's just as important for them to listen to meditation they don't have to understand it completely but if I'm like an example to show them what is going on and like how it makes you feel my middle child she asked me to have baths with her and and meditate like she really really channels that and she's got anxiety too but the timing breath work in meditation because I find like you were just saying with your brain, I am like, yeah, I'm meditating, I'm meditating. Then I'm like, what's for dinner? What's for lunch? What am I going to do tomorrow? <laughs> and then I'm like, no, 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 go back. And what the the breath work does is I'm breathing in for four and I'm exhaling for eight and it's keeping me in check. And that even for five to 10 minutes is an absolute game changer. It sets me up for my day. I've only recently been doing this since I've come good and it has been like these are the reminders I need to give myself to continue because this is bettering my health. Someone once gave me the analogy and um, it made it seem a little bit less scary but clearly didn't work enough that I started but I've thought about it since, that it was like the aim is to not have no thoughts. Mm. So it's like watching a car drive past, mm. the car is your thought and instead of getting in that car you just watch it go past and I was like, oh, because I'm like I feel like it's advertisers you're meant to sit there and your brain is just like an empty vessel thinking of nothing and I'm like I can't do that. Unless that you're a monk, that's me. not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It's so trip. That's a beautiful analogy. And I love that. Because also it helps you as well disassociate with emotions. It's like welcoming emotions in. Because as human beings, we need to feel all emotions, like this whole toxic positivity of Instagram culture of good vibes only. Like that shit does not exist. It's actually quite dangerous if you live yeah. in that realm, right? Like it's actually emotions turn up to give us a message. And it's okay to be pissed off. Right? It is okay to be sad. It is okay to feel anger. It just allows you to notice that kind of welcoming in that stranger going, oh, hello, you've turned up because my husband's eating too loudly his cereal right now, so you're feeling a bit pissed <laughs> off. I get that. <laughs> Let that go, right? Or if you want to hit the feedback loop, go again. But you're kind of more in, in control and more in, more in power. Speaking of Instagram and, and social platforms, I read somewhere last night someone posted that they were having a massive failure, something really, really bad happened. And what they did was they popped a bubbles of champagne and they celebrated their failures. They sat back that day and they sat there and, and said to themselves, what have I learned from these failures and this horrible situation? How am I going to grow? And I absolutely love that someone has put a positive spin on a feeling and emotions that are so vulnerable. Like we've been recently in pretty, you know, crummy, even COVID, you know, like crummy times and feeling overwhelmed, but to actually celebrate those downfalls as wins, what that would do to make you feel happy about what you're learning. I just, I honestly, I was blown away and it was such a simple thing to do. So I'm going to be pissed every day of the week <laughs> is what I'm saying. <laughs> Again, you're normalizing, you know, all of that stuff and, the, and those hardships and those tough times and those challenges, you know, it actually, it, it does, it makes you grow so much. And 
even like little silly things like cutting my hair short, like Gwyneth Paltrow when I was 15, I thought I could rock that look. I totally could not. And it was just like, (laughs) (laughs) that was the year I had to work on my personality. I'm like, God, I'm going to look like this. I'm going to have to be more than looks this year. Totally right. I've got to play another card here. I've got to be really nice or, but yeah, no, I think that's, I think that is awesome. I think one of the questions we get uh, the most when we talk about this topic is there's so many overlaps of symptoms of kind of quote unquote normal postpartum and feelings of postnatal depression and anxiety. And Mm. people are always crying out going, how do I know if what I'm feeling is okay or if I'm, you know, slipping too far and I need help? Do you have any tips? Yes, I would say definitely get well resourced, you know, from the Gidget Foundation or even Are You Okay um, has fantastic. I'm an ambassador for them too. There's usually three three sort of pillars it sits into, you know, what are you doing? You know, are you starting to socially isolate? Are you noticing that you are crying every day? You actually have no no light days. You know, one of my friends is like, Charles, I'm crying a few days a week. Then I have postnatal. I said, are you seeing any sunshine within that week? And she's like, yeah. I am, I'm getting glimpses five out of seven days. And I'm like, beautiful. So you're going to be okay. Make sure you go and see a psychologist and just have a conversation and yeah. them in. But if you're like, you know, having insomnia, if you notice these behavioural changes start to happen, you're starting to maybe self-medicate with more alcohol at night time. You're like, okay, I used to have a glass of wine, now I'm smashing a whole bottle, right, to help ease the anxiety and stress at night time. You know, other things that you're doing, like certain behaviours could be things like, feeling a sense of helplessness I think that's a huge one or feeling like you're a burden right on other people or you're feeling a disconnection between you and the baby you look at the baby and you think they're a stranger to me Mm. and I know that sounds really unfamiliar for people who've never had perinatal anxiety and depression but for some of us like me I used to look at Clara and she was a stranger in my house and that also scared me I'm like oh my gosh like I, I meant to love this thing and and you know and and going into hospital and working with my psychiatrist and mirror neurons and just faking it till you make it kind of strategy, really. Mm. Within a couple of weeks, like the mirror neurons are firing and I'm like, man, I would die for this kid. Like she is, she's like my best mate, to be honest. She's seven and she's just an awesome human being. I love her dearly. But there's definitely, I think, the key thing is being really educated and being really empowered of what to look out for because 70% of us, that says it in the research, still don't know what the signs and symptoms are when it comes to our mental health mm. decline. But also like how to spot it in someone else. So I'm very dialed in, right? If someone, even if one of the uh, my really good mate's husbands starts chatting to me in a particular way, I will literally have a conversation with them. You know, are you actually doing okay? Mm. This sounds really hard. Like are you, you know, so knowing what to look out for also within the people around us I think is really, really important because my, my husband didn't know. He's just like, babe, this is just normal. Everyone feels like this. My mum was saying the same thing. It's like maybe you need to go to church more. And I'm like, are you kidding? Do you know my husband at that time literally got to a point of he didn't know how to deal with it because he wasn't used to it. So he got upset and angry and he just didn't know what to do. Now he's actually seen me go through these episodes a few times. And today I even said to him, Hey, I'm going to come home. I'm going to do the fridges, swap them over, clean it out. And he's like, no, you're not. You're not doing that. You've recorded two recordings today. What you're going to do is you're going to rest today. You're not going to do anything at all. And then tomorrow you can pick a job and do that. And he, like you're saying about your husband, he is literally my bouncer now. He says, that is too much. You can't do that. And I listen to him because I'm clearly not listening to myself. Now you, I know you press for time. You have a new book, The Mindful High Performer. It's now available for pre-order. I have pre-ordered my book already. Can you please tell our listeners what they can expect to find in your book? So when writing this book, to be honest, it was going to look a bit different, right? But because I had a mental health relapse when I signed the deal, it came out as a different book, which I am so grateful for. I am so grateful that I had a relapse then because my goodness, this book is going to be so much more helpful, to be fair. So when I had the relapse, I said to Murdoch, this book, you know, we had everything that I'm learning at university that we know to care for your mental health, right? You've got so many different chapters in there. There's science-based, really fun, practical ways to take care of your mental health and your well-being so you can thrive. Not just at work or not just as a, as a mom or dad, but just as a human being in life. 
And so it goes, through, it runs through so many different chapters. And I, I kind of want it to be like a friend, right, on your bookshelf. You're like, you know what, this month, I'm going to work on my gut health. Or, mm. you know what, January, I'm going to work on my goals. Or, I need to be more productive. So I'm going to pull out that chapter. My sleep's kind of getting a little bit impacted. I'm going to work on that chapter. So it's not like you have to flog through the book right in one sitting. Don't stress yourself out even more by reading it cover to cover. Can you imagine? You'd be like, oh, my gosh, I'm so overwhelmed right now. I need to fix everything. (laughs) Exactly. So you don't want it to be that. You want it to be your buddy on the shelf that you can always turn to. But on the end chapter, and this is really important for me, when I went back to Murdoch and I said I'm not writing the book unless these three things happen. One, you give me a ghostwriter. I'm not a professional writer. Mm. I want someone that can come on this journey with me who's a professional who can make this book a million times better than what I can write. So they did that. I interviewed five and I found the most weapon of a human being. Her name is Summerland. I pump her up everywhere I go. A lot of authors hide their ghostwriter. And, again, I feel like being an authentic person, Good on you. I, I couldn't do the book in a year, and that sets up unprecedented, like, yeah. that's, that's not normal, okay? Like, that, again... It sets people up for failure, to be honest. If you're like, well, I did this book and I was doing uni and I was like, no, that's not true. She, this book would be a shit without Summerland. <laughs> I love her. The book is epic because of her. So number one, ghostwriter. Number two, you need to give me a year. I cannot turn something that I want the mum out at Dubbo who doesn't get access to our sessions every day at Commonwealth Bank or Google or eBay, pick up that book and just one dip in there helps her mental health or could help her child. That is the intent of the book. It just helps one person, saves one person with their mental health. And so that was a huge thing in terms of the time. I wanted to have an extended year so I could actually give it two hours a week with someone that it needed to and we could craft this out to be a really epic book. And three, I want to write about medication because I, I want the world to start viewing medication as another tool in the toolkit if you need it. Hmm. And, and like you're saying, Jade, it's not like a one-size-fits-all. Zoloft doesn't work for a lot of people, right? If it's not working, for do not stop trying until you find, but it's so critical you work with your experts, you work with a psychiatrist and psychologist and your doctor, so you need a team around you. And I really want to break the stigma on that piece because you can do everything. And then again, you can't just rely on medication without exercising, without putting boundaries in, without, you know. So I want the world to view this <laughs> as this full offering of a toolkit for your mental health and wellbeing. Absolutely love it. I can't wait to read it. And I just want to thank you for coming on and talking to us about mental health because obviously our listeners know it is such an important conversation that I share my journey. You know, we just all want to not be alone and to have a book like that would be just amazing. So a big heartfelt thank you for what you're doing. Thank you so much, girls. I absolutely loved this chat. I'll see you in my bed tonight. (laughs) (laughs) I'll give you a sleep tonight, Jane. (laughs) Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. Bye, girls. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a review. If you didn't, good on you. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.